a good move. Why'd you dance him? Dancing is forbidden. Running crew, welcome to Dancing is Forbidden in Aqua Teen Hunger Force Exploration. I am Ronnie, and on this podcast, I am talking about every Aqua Teen episode one episode at a time. And we've talked about every season one episode. So, how about we talk about season one as a whole before we move on to season two next week? And I'll be going over what really happened in 2002. I'm really counting season one as a 2002 thing because most of the episodes that aired came out in 2002, but I'll get into that later. Yeah, we'll talk about what happened in 2002 and then season one as a whole, how the show evolved and all that kind of stuff, wrapping up any loose ends before we head into season two. And then also at the tail end, I'll probably get a little sentimental about the podcast a little bit because this is the end of season one of the podcast. And yeah, lots of things wrapping up today. So first of all, I want to thank you for coming with me on this journey through season one of the show. If you haven't heard those episodes, check this podcast feed wherever you're listening because I've gone through all 18 episodes of season one going in-depth, finding as many references as I could, as many trivia tidbits, all that kind of stuff, and just kind of reacting to things as we see them. But yeah, it's it's been a crazy journey through season one. And before I get into the 2002 stuff, I just want to say right off the bat, from my memory, I didn't think I would like season one as much because as I've said plenty of times, I grew up with the volume two and three DVDs. The volume two DVD set has the last two episodes of season one, so Mail Order Bride and Cybernetic Ghost, as well as the first half of season two. And then the volume three discs has the second half of season two. So I grew up with all of those episodes, watching them religiously. Of course, I had seen every single one of these episodes at some point on syndication on Adult Swim. But from my memory, I'm like, yeah, season one's fine, but season two is better. And I'm just going to lay it out here right off the bat. I really liked season one way more than I thought I would. Even the weaker episodes, episodes I remember not liking as much, either I ended up appreciating more because of this, or it turns out I actually really did enjoy some of those episodes, like Balloon and Stein, even though my memory of them wasn't that great. And that's kind of the fun thing with this podcast, because we do go through the time periods these episodes came out, as well as the episodes themselves, and... You know, memory is a very fallible thing. I always remember things a certain way back in this period, and then you see what was going on, and it turns out that your memories weren't really correct at all, or they weren't accurate at all, and that's kind of what I'm discovering through doing this, and I think that's what's really special about this podcast and what's really fun about it. Beyond being able to deep dive and kind of live in the world of what is my favorite show of all time, and I assume is yours as well, if you're listening to this. So, all right, let's jump into the 2002 stuff, just kind of go over the pop culture from that year. And I'm looking forward to doing this for every year that Aqua Teen had a season in, because, you know, I was alive during this period. I was quite young at this point. I was about nine, I think, eight or nine. So, you know, these memories, I, I, I remember when a lot of this stuff came out. I remember when it was popular, but... I don't remember things crystal clear, really, because I I was young at the time and I probably wasn't paying that much attention. So it's fun to to dig through this. But once we get to the later seasons of Aqua Teen when I was, you know, a young adult, I think that'll be a lot of fun, too. So 2002, let's see what the top dogs were from that year. I've got the four highest grossing films from 2002 here. And I will read them to you in ascending order because all four of them are still very, very timely to today. They they are very relevant to today. And it kind of shows how little things change, even though 
of course things change, but but some things just stay the same. So let's see what was top in the box office in 2002. In fourth place, we have Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets bringing in $252 million gross. I assume this is the, the US box office, not the world box office. So yeah, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And Harry Potter, they are making some small things for it here and there. They aren't making any new movies anymore, obviously, uh, to my knowledge, but I'm sure that they'll bring them back at some point. And Harry Potter still very much in the public discourse. In third place for 2002 in the box office, we had The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, bringing in $262 million gross. And again, Lord of the Rings still big. I believe they're making a series now of that, so I, I think that'll be good. I finally started rewatching the movies recently because they're on HBO Max. And yeah, not not crazy about the first one, but my understanding is the first one sets up the, the rest of the two. So I'm trying to keep an open mind until I see all of them and then I can come on here and tell you guys my edgelord thoughts about them. So ranking in second place for 2002, we have Star Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones bringing in $310 million gross. And yeah, Star Wars, I mean, it's Star Wars. They're still making tons of stuff for this universe and still very applicable today. And then in first place in 2002, we had the Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire bringing in $403 million gross. And there's a new Spider-Man movie that just came out as of this recording. It looks like it's called No Way Home. Yes, you guys can, can hear firsthand how up-to-date I am on current culture things. It, yeah, Spider-Man No Way Home, but it's in theaters right now, and I know it's very popular. I'm hearing really great things about this movie. So, yeah. As in 2002, as in, at this point, 2022, Spider-Man is bringing home the big bucks. This is an IP that has paid for itself billions of times over, I'm sure. So those are our top four films this year in terms of box office performance. Obviously, if we were to get into like which ones are more critically or audience loved these days, I think the list would probably look pretty similar, but it might be a little different. But before we move on from films, I want to give you guys my top three films from this year. And this list is in terms of what I liked at the time. Not really what I like now because I haven't seen most of these movies in a long time, but I remember really liking them at the time. So let's just run through these real quick. So my number three film for 2002 would be Queen of the Damned, which is like a weird new metal vampire movie. I was really into new metal back at this period. And you had Jonathan Davis from Korn supplying the singing voice of the vampire. Basically, the vampire is like a rock star or something, and he has to put on these concerts. I don't know, man. I, I can't really remember it. I haven't seen this movie in easily over 15 years. But yeah, something along these lines where I know the singer of Korn was in it. They had all sorts of new metal songs that I liked. Like They had uh, Static X doing a song in it and stuff. One of my favorite bands still to this day. Static X actually a band that I went on to appreciate more as I got older, which is rare because most bands I liked at that age, I don't listen to at all anymore. But but yeah, fun movie, interesting movie based on a book by Anne Rice, which I actually didn't know. This is this is like a, a sequel to Interview with a Vampire, which I was completely unaware of. I didn't know this was based on a book. I, it was so nonsensical. I thought it was just made up as, as a movie to capitalize on new metal and vampire imagery. But my understanding is Anne Rice didn't really like the movie at all. She saw it one time and then she said that was enough because they didn't do the books justice. So I, I have to assume, as in any case, the books are better. One thing that's interesting from this film is Stuart Townsend, who plays Lestat in the movie, the, the lead guy, he originally was cast as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, but was recast because after a couple of days of shooting, 
the filmmakers realized that he looked too young for the role, so they had to replace him with someone a little bit more grisly, a little bit more manly and tough. And last but not least about Queen of the Damned is Aaliyah is in this film, who we talked about on this podcast at some point, and, and she was she finished up filming the movie right before she died, so she never got to do any ADR, any voiceovers for the film or anything like that. So they actually had her brother do her voiceovers because they had a similar speaking style, and then they had to affect his voice to make it sound, you know, feminine and more like hers. But yeah, really crazy. Uh, we went over... I, I'm sorry, I can't remember which episode it was of the podcast, but where, where we talked about her untimely death and all that stuff. So moving on, my second favorite film from this period was Triple X with Vin Diesel, a stupid action film that, you know, I, I don't know if it's any good any, these days. I, I, I doubt it is, but I remember watching this on repeat over and over again. I, I got the DVD as a kid, and I remember one year for Christmas, we got a portable DVD player, and I would just watch this movie on repeat all the time. So if you're looking for a stupid action flick, check out Triple X. I know they made a bunch more movies in the they made it into like a series basically because there's a, plenty of other Triple X films, but I never saw any of the other ones, just the original one. And yeah, that's probably enough. And then my number one film from 2002, there's an asterisk after this one is Studio Ghibli's Spirited Away. The asterisk being this film was originally released in Japan in fall of 2001, but it was localized for the USA and other countries in 2002. So I'll just consider it here because there were some Aqua Teen episodes in 2001 as well. And yeah, Spirited Away rented a ton of times from the grocery store because, you know, grocery stores used to have DVD and cassette rentals. And I remember we, my sister and I would pick this one out all the time. It's such an incredible film, still holds up today. And if you have HBO Max, you can check out Spirited Away and all the other Studio Ghibli films, most of which are all incredible. Really, really have a soft spot for this film. So the, Spirited Away being the one movie I've actually seen as an adult again and enjoyed it. So that's my personal list of 2002. We have Queen of the Damned, Triple X, and Spirited Away. And if you would like to let me know what you were watching at the time, if you were alive at the time, let me know. Moving on to our albums, our top albums of 2002, coming in at number three this year, we have... Avril Lavigne, the queen of the Billboard Top 200 this year with her album Let Go, which came out this year in 2002, and it had other big songs on it such as Skater Boy and I'm With You. This album on heavy rotation in my household, my mom was a big fan, and by association, so was I. This being Avril's first album and filled with plenty of classic songs, if I hear this one on at the store or something... I'm not mad about it. Kind of funny on Reddit on the subreddit called Hobby Drama. I was just reading about these shoes called the Osiris D3s that were really popular back in the day. And I guess those are the shoes that Avril is wearing on this album cover. It's a picture of her standing there looking moody and the background is all blurred like some sort of motion blur. Then her name is etched above. Avril Lavigne, let go. Very moody. And now I know what shoes she's wearing on the album cover. And before I move on to our number two, I got a little story for you guys regarding this album and particularly this song I just played, Complicated. So before I get into the story, 
Uh, those of the faint of heart, you might want to turn this off. If you have small children in the room, maybe put them outside. I don't care if it's cold outside. Put them outside. They don't need to hear this. If you're listening to this at work, turn it down a little bit. And if you're one of those uh, social justice warrior uh, cancel culture people, just turn this off now because you guys are not going to like this. Okay, when I was a kid, you understand, we used to talk about the song Complicated. We would say, why'd you have to go and make me so constipated? Can you believe this? All right, look, I realize now uh, I regret saying this. I regret telling you this. I was just a kid at the time. So if if the podcast feed goes down, you guys, you guys know why. Because somebody canceled me because I told you about the funny joke I used to say as a kid. So moving on to number two, I have to get up real quick. I have to turn down the thermostat or something. I don't know what was going on. There was a man in here earlier. He came in while I was recording and he had a little band-aid on his face and he went up to my thermostat and I feel like he turned it up because I'm starting to sweat. And let me tell you, I'm tight on cash right now. I can't afford this heating bill. So let me go turn this heat down. I'll play the song. I'll be back when it's over. No Alright, enough of this ridiculous joke. We all know Nelly wasn't in my house. Why the fuck would he come to my house? We have Nelly with Nellyville taking over the number two spot in 2002. Not an album I'm as familiar with, but I mean, you know I'm getting down to hot in here. If this song doesn't get you moving, doesn't get your booty grooving, then there's something wrong with you. You need to, you need to see a therapist or something because this song... It's always going down. I listened to it seven times, folks. Seven times I listened to this one to record for this podcast because I couldn't get enough of it. And I'm not the only one because this is the second most popular album of 2002 and God damn it, I support it. So that's all I got to say about Band-Aid Boy, Nelly. What was the top selling album of 2002? Let's see. The FCC won't let me be or let me be me, so let me see. They try to shut me down on MTV, but it feels so empty without me. So come on and dip, come on your lips, fuck that, come on your lips and some on your tits and get ready. Cause this shit's about to get heavy, I just settled all my lawsuits. Fuck you, Debbie! Now this looks like a job for me, so everybody just follow me. Cause we need a little controversy, cause it feels so empty without me. I said this looks like a job for me, so everybody just follow me. Cause we need a little controversy, cause it feels so empty. 2002, easily the year of Eminem. Eminem was at his apex here. He was at his height. The height of his powers were in 2002. Not only did he have the Eminem show, this album, at the top of the charts, he also had the 8 Mile soundtrack, which sold very, very well, as well as the 8 Mile film that he acted in that was a huge smash hit. So what more is there to say? I, I didn't get into Eminem until he released his greatest hits in like 2005 or so, maybe. Uh, but listening back to this song specifically, such a relic of its time. I mean, it, it's, it's still decent. I still enjoy it now, but really takes me back to 2002. I remember when this song Without Me came out and the music video was out, I would have been eight or nine or whatever. And I had a friend over who was the same age and my mom yelled at him because... <laughs> He kept singing the chorus over and over again. Like, it's not like she was, she was like, 
oh, don't sing Eminem or anything like that. It, it was just getting annoying because this kid just kept repeating it over and over and over again. But yeah, man, just listening to the song really brought me back to that period. And I like how fun this song is. Eminem's just kind of goofing around, but it's still catchy. But, you, you know, there's like fart noises in the song and stuff. Just not taking it seriously. And that's something that I like about Eminem is, is he doesn't always take himself so seriously. Of course, he has serious songs. And some of those are quite good as well. But I really appreciate just just having a good time and and not having everything be so heavy. And not to sound like an old man, you know, back in my day. But it seems like mumble rap and stuff is really big right now. And I don't really see that same kind of fun attitude from that kind of music. Now, I know I'm just kind of cherry picking. I'm sure that there are rappers coming out with fun, carefree kind of songs like this. But at least from the people I work with and stuff, when I hear their music, it is not at all in that vein of possibility of just being silly, fun, catchy music. It's all very serious sounding. And that kind of leads me to something I wanted to mention here, which I will mention in every season recap, is even though nostalgia is a great thing, when it comes to music, do not fool yourself. Don't think, oh, back then music was all great and now it sucks. That's not the case. I was looking it up. Plenty of shitty, awful music released this year as well. And I'm, I'm sure some of you think that these songs I'm talking about now are shitty and awful, but no, uh, you cannot like them. That's fine. These are not bad songs because there was some awful stuff I, I heard earlier, but I'm not going to waste more time talking about music with that. So yeah, top three albums of 2002. We have Avril Lavigne with Let Go, Nelly with Nellyville, and Eminem with The Eminem Show. So real quick before we move on with music, I want to hit you guys with my three favorite albums of 2002. And as always, feel free to let me know your favorite albums of the year because I'm what some might call a music fan and I will check it out. So coming in at third place on my list, I've got... Coming in at my number three spot, I've got Bloodsport by Sneaker Pimps, their third and final album for some time until last year they came out finally with their fourth album called Squaring the Circle, which was all right. But I, I prefer this, this third album, Bloodsport, that came out in 2002, Sneaker Pimps being a UK band. So any UK listeners... You guys got some good music on your hands. Yeah, just 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 a great trip-hop band. Their first album had a female singer, but then they ended up kicking her out or something along those lines. And then one of the guys in the band, Chris Corner, started singing over their next two albums. That's who you heard singing in the clip I played, the song Kiro TV. And then after Sneaker Pimps disbanded it in like 2003 or so, he went on and started IMX, a project that I very much enjoy. So that's my number three. Sneaker Pimps with Bloodsport. Give it a listen. Coming in at number two on my list, I've got... Coming in at number two on the list, I've got My Chemical Romances, I Brought You My Bullets, You Brought Me Your Love. What a title. Now, My Chemical Romance blowing up a few years later in 2006 with their album Black Parade, which was their third album. But I really prefer the sound of this first album of theirs because it's more raw, more energetic. The, the music is just more in line with what I normally listen to. 
And I actually grew up with their second album, which came out in 2004, called Three Tears for Sweet Revenge. And I like that album, but as I get older, I actually prefer this album more. Which, you know, you figure that I would prefer the album I grew up with, but that's not the case here. Just really enjoy the energy on these tracks. The, the band inspired by 9-11 to kind of like do something with their lives and coming out with this, what I think is a great album. Every song on it is worth your time. Give it a listen. Moving on to number one, my favorite album of 2002. My favorite album of 2002, easily Coheed and Cambria's first album, The Second Stage Turbine Blade. And My Chemical Romance and Coheed and Cambria, both from the same area of the country. I think Claudio, the singer of Coheed, lived in New Jersey for a while, and My Chemical Romance are a Jersey band. So, you know, a, a loose Aquatine reference there, I suppose, but interesting that both of my favorite albums of this year come from the same area. Something must have been in the tap water at the time or something. I don't know. But yes, Coheed and Cambria, one of my favorite bands. I love almost everything they've done since this one. A few hiccups along the way, but you know, that that's that's normal. You're not gonna like every single thing that somebody does. And my fiance hates Coheed and Cambria, so I can't, you know, blast them out loud as much as I would like to, but always a special band in my heart. This album, their first one I listened to a lot in 2011, which I can't believe was over 10 years ago <laughs> at this point. But yeah, very special album to me. Not a bad song on it. Coheed and Cambria's second stage Turbine Blade. Check it out. Cool thing about Coheed and Cambria is they are a concept band. So I'm sure you know what a concept album is, an album with a theme running through it and the songs being connected in some way. Well, all of Coheed's albums play into this larger story, which is really interesting, uh, except for one of their albums they they left out of that. But, but all of their albums except for one, and they've been around for 20 years, so it's quite a few albums all play into this concept. It's like a sci-fi space thing. Really interesting. But if you don't care about that, you don't have to pay attention to it. You can just enjoy the music for what it is. And I've since met somebody who was in the same music scene as these guys when he was younger. So he's, you know, given me some background information and stuff because he was friends with these guys when they recorded this album. He went to their album release show. And I know this for a fact because he sent me a video of him at the show and he's like, oh, there's me, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. So got some cool stories from him about that. And just, just a fantastic album. One of my favorites of all time. So that's it for our music. You know, what's coming up next. We got some video games to talk about. So I'm going off of the United States stats for these because I live in the U.S. Obviously, between continents and countries and stuff, these lists vary a little bit, especially, you know, in Asian countries. It's kind of a whole different ball game. But in the United States, I'm going to give you guys the top three video games sold of 2002. So this is by sales numbers. Coming in at number three, we have Grand Theft Auto 3. Now, this game came out in 2001, but it was the end of 2001. So most of the sales were in 2002. And haven't played Grand Theft Auto 3, but this, my understanding is, it was the first 3D Grand Theft Auto game. Before that, they were like top-down kind of games. It was different than what we're used to today. This being the first Grand Theft Auto game with the formula that we are familiar with. So that is GTA 3 coming in at number 3. And I'm not going to list sales numbers here because when I click between things... The numbers are all different. I'm not going to worry about giving you guys bad numbers. I'll just say on Wikipedia, this is the third most sold 
game this year in the United States. So moving on to number two, we have for the sports hunks out there, Madden NFL 2003. This being the second most popular game of the year, sports game for all the jocks. Uh, You can get your hut hut hike on virtually this time. On the PS2, the Xbox, the GameCube, the PS1, this game was everywhere. If you had any sort of gaming system, if you were a man who liked to play football or were even somewhat interested in it, you probably had this game back in the day. Can't speak to it, but I'm sure it kicked ass. And finally, coming in at number one in 2002, we have our old friend Grand Theft Auto back again with Vice City. This game I've talked about on the podcast. I have played. I do own. I have a very soft spot for it. You know, back in the day, I every, everyone in my family, well, not everyone, but <laughs> but a lot of people in my family had this game. So I, I didn't have it myself growing up. But whenever I would see one of my cousins or, or my uncle or something, you know, they had it. And I would get to play this awesome game that was unlike anything I had because I only had older systems and handhelds. So I didn't have anything like this where it was 3D, you walked around, you could steal cars, go driving down the street. I didn't have anything like that at the time. And this blew my mind and and it was like this mystical, mythical game in my mind because I would run across it sometimes and people had it and just had so much fun beating up people on the street and just being a bad boy because I was always a good guy growing up. So it's it's fun to, you know, be a villain and, and attack people and steal cars and stuff. And yeah, just just always had a lot of history with this game, and it deserves the spot, honestly, as the best-selling game of 2002, because it's fucking awesome. And I should say that back in 2002, both of these Grand Theft Auto games were only on the PlayStation 2. They were PS2 exclusives at first, and then they eventually came to other systems, but purely in 2002, you had to have a PS2 to play it. So, that is the uh, sales list. I'm going to give you guys real quick my top three from 2002 games I have played. Coming in at number three, I have Golden Sun, The Lost Age. Golden Sun being an RPG series, uh, role-playing game for those unfamiliar, on the Game Boy Advance. So like I said, I had handhelds and I had this game. Now, I got the first game randomly for Christmas from my aunt and uncle because we would do kind of a a grab bag where someone would get one of the nieces and nephews and, and we would get a little gift. And I got this game randomly. I had never heard of it. Well, sorry, not this game. The first game, Golden Sun. But Golden Sun, the first one came out the year previous. And this one came out this year in 2002. And I got Golden Sun. And I was always really drawn to it. But being so young at the time, there was a lot of reading. And I couldn't really, like, I didn't really want to read that much. As some of you guys will know how Japanese RPGs are. And yeah, so as a kid, I didn't get very far with it. But as, an, as a young adult, maybe like 1920, I picked up the games again because I think I had lost them. So I rebought them off of eBay and played through both of them. And they were great. I had a, an amazing time with them. And this second game, The Lost Age, the one that I'm talking about here that came out this year in 2002, uh, is the better of the two. I feel like the game is very expansive and there's a lot more you can do in it than in the first one. And the stories between the two are very interlinked. Originally, it was supposed to be all one game. But they couldn't fit all that stuff on one cartridge, so they had to split it up into two games. But yeah, Golden Sun, The Lost Age, great time, and I would like to play it at some point within the next five to ten years. Play it again, because it's really cool. So, my number two game of 2002, I've talked about before, is Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. Now, this just came out in Japan in 2002. We didn't get it anywhere else until 2003, I think. But yeah, I had this game growing up, and really, really loved this game, the region you explore in it is incredible the music is awesome Uh, a nice tropical feel to the game i really like it and again something i would like to play again lots of fond memories as a little kid playing this pokemon game 
And last but not least, I've talked about this one as well. We have Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell came out this year, and this would be my favorite game that came out in 2002 because I'm just a Splinter Cell fanboy. Like I said, I like sneaking around, being a creepy guy in the shadows. Lots of fun. And we talked about this on the podcast not too long ago, but since we did talk about it, Ubisoft since announced that they are remaking this game, which I am super excited about. And we'll definitely pick that up once it drops and see how it is. Now, I didn't play this game until maybe 2014, so it's not a game I grew up with, but still a lot of love for this franchise. And hey, I'm excited for it. Bring it on, Ubisoft. We've got, you know, Aqua Team coming back. We've got Splinter Cell coming back after almost 10 years now. And hey, Valve, if you're listening, give us more Half-Life. Maybe that'll do the trick. So that's video games for 2002. Definitely a fun time in gaming. Lots of Stone Cold classics dropping this year, and I hope it only gets better from here. We'll see. And with all of this stuff, if, if you have something that you love from this period, be it you know a TV show, film, music, video games, whatever, let me know. Reach out to me, and I'd love to hear what you gotta say. So that's it for our pop culture from 2002. I'm sure there's other stuff we can go into, but this is an Aqua Teen podcast after all, and we are about half an hour in. So let's talk about the teens. So first of all, I want to address the year that I consider this season to be. So I picked 2002 because 13 of the 18 episodes this season aired then, right? A lot of people consider Aqua Teen to be a 2000 show. Oh, it came out in 2000. On paper, sure, that's that's probably correct. I'm not going to sit here and argue that. But it was the very, very, very tail end of 2000. It was like the 29th or something that they aired uh, a rough cut of Rabot, which didn't come back until almost a year later in its final form. So Aqua Team didn't officially air until 2001. And even then, only five episodes did. And they aired rather sporadically. So that's why, to me, it's more of a 2002 thing than a 2001 thing or a 2000 thing. Because... Yeah, it existed in those times, but not really as much as it did in 2002, and definitely not with the force and vigor that it did in 2002. And that's, you know, it took the show a while to find itself, and those episodes we got in 2000, 2001 were the, the show finding itself, so it didn't really come into its own until 2002. So before we get into just general talk on the show, which I will get to, I have a couple of lists here that I made that I want to go through that are related to the show. And before I jump into my top three favorite episodes of the season, if you haven't, head over to the YouTube channel for this podcast. If you check the show notes, wherever you're listening, it'll be there. Or just Google, you know, Dancing is Forbidden Aqua Teen Podcast or whatever, you'll find it. But I made a YouTube video that came out last week where I rank all of the episodes from this season. But today I'm just going to go through the top three and kind of explain why and what I like about them and all that stuff stuff that wasn't in the video. So if you did see the video, I'm not, I'm not just rehashing that. This is going to be more context and stuff. But yeah, if you want to see where every episode stands on my list, you can head over to the YouTube. But yes, let's jump in to my top three favorite episodes of Aqua Teen Season 1. So coming in at the number three spot, we have... Aliens, I can't believe it. Are you a peaceful race? Well, hell yes. We are barbecuing, aren't we not? How do you want your melon? Emery, the melon's on fire! Well, of course they're on fire. They're not made to be cooked. But you know fire. You prance around like you have laser eyes. Coming in at number three, I have Space Conflict from Beyond Pluto. Now, those who listened to that podcast episode, I mean, I assume you have... That was the first episode of Aqua Teen I gave a 5 out of 5. I found this to be the first truly perfect episode of the show where I love the villains, I love their interaction with the Aqua Teens, 
And I I just really was enamored with this episode. And I want to say, before jumping into this podcast, I really didn't know that I preferred the Plutonians over the Moonanites. I assumed I would like the Moonanites more from my memories, but I actually found that to be the opposite. And I enjoy the Plutonians more than the Moonanites, and I like those episodes that the Plutonians are in more than the episodes the Moonanites are in. And why is that? I think it's because the Moonanites, their personalities get... I don't want to say old because they're very, very funny. It's it's not like I dislike them, but it's just really one note. And the Plutonians, I just like their brand of personality more where they're more incompetent and they're trying to take over the world, but they're just so stupid. They don't get anywhere near it, even though they seem like they have the capability to do so, given all their technology. Now, this kind of villain archetype from Aqua Teen Hunger Force started in episode two with Escape from Leprechopolis because, you know, those villains are pretty similar to the Plutonians, you know, except they're leprechauns and they they don't have technology or anything. They're all pretty poor. That's why they're trying to steal junk. But, you know, besides the obvious fact that we have Andy Merrill voicing one of the leprechauns and voicing Oglethorpe here, I just really appreciate from the show when the villains are stupid. I've said that a bunch of times on the podcast and the Plutonians are probably the best example of that. And I like the way that they can just get along with the Aqua Teens and I like the way that their personalities can interact with the Aqua Teens personalities. There's just a fun vibe between the two when they're bouncing off each other, as opposed to when the Moon Knights show up, they really take over the episode and they're more aggressive in their personalities towards it, while the Plutonians, they're a little bit more chill, I guess, and it allows the Aqua Teens to be the Aqua Teens without the whole episode becoming about the Plutonians. Now, before I move on from this episode, there is something I noticed, a graphical glitch that I didn't point out in the main episode where I covered it, so I'll mention it here. So 10 minutes and 40 seconds into the episode, when Shake gets in the escape pod and goes outside of the Plutonian ship and then they drive away and Shake spins around in that metal suit thing that he's in. What I didn't notice before was that in space, you can see very, very, very faintly, it says written by John and then P.E. and I can't see the rest of the last name. So this probably taken from some old Hanna-Barbera end credits or beginning credits or something because we see the earth in the background and the moon and so it was probably from some space show where they just lifted this background but it was around the time of the credits where there would be text over the screen so they had to get it as the text was fading in but you can see the text has faded in a little bit so when you see shake spinning around you'll see written by john and then i can't see the last name but there's definitely text on the screen which is very funny And then before I head out of this episode, I want to mention I really like the joke of Frylock trying to meet friends, trying to meet buddies. He shows up in the Plutonian ship with a six-pack. It's just very funny and a nice humanizing moment for Frylock that we don't really get in the first season. So, of course, if you want to hear my other thoughts on the episode, just check out the episode of this podcast where I cover Space Conflict from Beyond Pluto because I talk about it for an hour there. So, moving on. My second favorite episode from season one. What is it? Years ago, my dad sent me down here to conquer your species by infiltrating your gene pool. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Well, when a man and a woman love each other physically outside of a bar. Rich bar. Coming in at number two, I have the episode Circus listed. And the reason for this isn't super exciting. I just thought it was a very, very solid episode, and I like every single beat that we hit. We get Shake starting off with a twist. We think he's bringing Meatwad's computer camp, even though we know that's not 
you know, he can't possibly be doing something nice for Meatwad. We find out he's selling Meatwad to the circus. We get Matt Malero playing Randy the Astonishing and doing just a great job at it. And Meatwad being sold to the circus, he doesn't really know that. He thinks it's computer camp the entire time. So you get some great gags with that, with Meatwad kind of being captive but not knowing it. Then we get some good stuff with Carl in this episode, which leads Frylock, Shake, and Carl to go to the circus to see Meatwad performing. And I like that we get the all these old Hanna-Barbera backgrounds all this stuff from other cartoons thrown into this one episode of Aqua Teen more than maybe any other episode this season because there's just so many other assets here from other shows. We have a whole background of realistic looking people juxtaposed with the Aqua Teens and Carl who look nothing like that animation style and it's just it's just very a silly sight to behold. I mean, yeah, again, as, as the last one, if you want to hear me talk about Circus specifically, every single aspect of it I liked, check out that episode of the podcast where I cover Circus. It's just... I, I was just really impressed with this episode. I knew I liked it beforehand, but I, I was blown away by it and every single aspect of it I enjoyed. And back to Matt Malero real quick. He does other voices on the show, obviously, but I like that he's doing a, a more natural voice. Obviously, he's straining it a bit and trying to put on a voice. It's not his speaking voice, but I like that it's closer to his speaking voice here and we get to actually hear him act as this character and not just have it be pitched up like he's Ur or ran through a bunch of filters like he's the cybernetic ghost. It's just, I don't know, it, it just kind of stands out to me. All of the Aqua Teens in this one get good moments, especially Meatwad and Shake. Frylock, the lesser of the three, but Carl gets a lot of good moments too, so that's why that's what's important to me in an episode is it's you know not dominated just by one or two characters. We get a full array. And then Randy the Astonishing as well, who's not like a super interesting character, but the whole setup and situation of the episode is so funny that it carries a character that is serviceable, is good. Not a classic Aqua Teen villain that everyone loves, but but one that I really enjoyed in this episode and I wouldn't change a thing about. Because as I hinted at with the Plutonians, I like that Randy doesn't take over the episode like other villains do. The Aqua Teens are still the Aqua Teens. You know, really, Shake is the villain here because he sold Meatwad to the circus. It's not like Randy really does anything wrong until the very end it's implied, although we don't actually see him do anything. So kind of a question mark there. Before I stop talking about this one, there's an, a correction on this one I would like to make or context I would like to add, rather. So in the episode, Shake says that he's putting a bid on a yacht that Don Henley once slept on or something along those lines. And before I credited Don Henley just as his solo work, not realizing that he was in The Eagles, a super huge band, one of the best-selling bands of all time. So yeah, I, I might have wanted to mention that. I'm not big into The Eagles or, or anything like that, so that's why I didn't know that, but it's worth mentioning. So that's my number two. Circus, let's see what I put in number one. I want candy, bubble gum and taffy. Skip to the sweet shop with my sweetheart Sandy. Got my penny safe, so I'm a sugar daddy. I'm a Hugh Cronin, she my Jessica Candy. I want candy. Coming in at number one, you know I got that MCP pants up in hizzy. What an episode. What a classic episode. Wonderful episode of the show. I mentioned on the YouTube video when I ranked all these, but... Being a music fan, I really appreciated this episode. I appreciate that they had MC Chris rapping, not just doing a silly voice, but rapping in the episode and creating what is legitimately a, a catchy, fun song. And I like that we get to see, you know, Carl and Meatwad work together in this episode. I, I love when these characters all work together towards something. They're working together to meet MCP pants and they're both excited about it. And that's a lot of fun. And then the episode, like up till that point, up until we actually meet MCP pants, the episode is pure gold, but it just gets even better once they get to 612 Wharf Avenue and see that it's a giant spider with a diaper on and a shower cap and and there's this whole 
plot and scheme to get people hopped up on sugar and candy so that he can use the energy to burrow into hell, releasing demons to sell weight loss pills or something in a pyramid scheme. It's just insane. It's just wild. And oh my God, it's just a great episode. And I would say this is definitely one of the ones you want to show somebody for the first time if they've never seen Aqua Teen, because if you like this episode, you'll like the rest of the show. But MC P-Pan's a classic character coming back across many seasons. And MC Chris, who plays him, was a PA on the early years in the show, working on some of the best episodes. So just just great. And I, I love that MC Chris, like without him, this episode could not exist, right? Like just not at all. So I, I love that they gave him the platform to elevate this episode and create just a great episode of television that only with these specific people working on it would you have gotten it. And going back to the villains taking over the episode thing, we don't get that with MCP Pants because we don't see him till the back half of the episode. He's ever present because we have his posters on Meatwad's wall and the, his music is always playing, but that's coming from the characters. That's coming from Meatwad. That's coming from Carl. We, we see the characters interact with this information and then, and then we meet the villain. It's not just the villain crashes in and suddenly the episode is about him, which, uh, yeah, I know I'm pushing this point a lot and... Obviously, nothing wrong with people who like the villains who do that. This is just all personal preference, which brings me to my bigger point of this is all just in incredibly subjective. My list could change at any point. You know, I, I could go to remake my favorite episode list again and it would be different. It, it's hard to prove these things to myself in terms of trying to figure out for me what my favorite episode is, let alone to explain to other people why or you know, why I think this episode is better than others. I mean, all the episodes are great. You put on any season one episode and I'm a happy guy. I'll sit there and watch it and have a good time. So yeah, I mean, these are just some of my three favorites and this list could change at any point. So let's move on to another little top three I was thinking of doing. And that is top three favorite villains from season one. And at some point, once we cover the entirety of the show, I would like to rank all the villains similar to how I ranked all the season one episodes. But you know, I'm not going to rank every single season one villain because there aren't a whole lot, but let's talk about my three favorites from this season. Coming in at number three, my third favorite villain of season one of Aqua Teen is... Now that was a phone call. I'm sure you've had one, but I get them all the time. In third place, I'm putting Romulox. As I've said before, I'm a Todd Berry freak. Love me some Todd Berry. So having him play a villain on the show is fantastic. And I love that... You know, yeah, villain really isn't the correct term for Romulox because it's framed that he stole Shake's PDA, but we find out that wasn't the case. He's like, his only wrongdoing is he's just an asshole, which is funny. He just thinks he's better than everybody. And that's the full extent of it. It's just silly because the whole episode leads up to this evil guy who is awful. And then we see he's just like a hipster who is full of himself and a douchebag. So just great. You know, he's got the easy flow elbow. How could I not appreciate him for that? And I know I said in that episode, the character itself does get old after a while, and I stand by that, but they didn't really overuse him. You know, he stays there for a little bit, says his stuff, and then just leaves, and, and that's the full extent of it. And yeah, I, I have to stop myself from, from talking about the episode as a whole, because I'm just talking about the villain himself, but I mean, the character design is hilarious. He's wearing the goofiest shit, and he just looks insane. And I like that we don't ever get the explanation of why he's in the Aqua Teen's house or what his relationship with Shake really is. Although it's established that there is one because Shake knows who he is. It's almost like, what is that called? A, a tulpa or something? Like Shake almost manifested Romulox because he wanted to believe this so badly because he was believing his own lies and he manifested this 
better than you character. So, yep, Romulox, solid pick, I think, for number three. Coming in at number two, who do we have? We will use him for the armies of the night. But I thought we were going to use the replicant down there to do an army of the night. Different army, dog face. No surprise to see the Plutonians on my list of favorite villains from season one. I mean, I've talked about them enough, so I'm not going to not going to blabber on here. I would just be repeating myself, but classic pair of villains. And let's just move on. Who do we got in the number one spot? Hey, 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 you ate a bunch of that candy before you came, didn't you? Oh, yeah, bro. You know I did. I like candy. Yeah, Bye-bye I know how the song goes. All right, I wrote it. Okay? No surprise that my favorite episode being MCP Pants, that MCP Pants is my favorite villain of the season. Beyond the plot points and story points of that episode with this song, just the character himself is hilarious. The way he interacts with the Aqua Teens is hilarious. And, you know, he was so popular that they brought him back several times in different iterations, coming back to Earth to try and do stuff with his music. So always a great time when MCP Pants shows up. And I hope that he shows up again in Aquadonk side pieces. To my knowledge, he hasn't been confirmed for it, but Fingers crossed that we see that little guy running around. So that's as far as I'm going to go with with ranking certain things. Uh, in, in future season recaps, I, I might have more ideas for things to do. But, you know, I thought of some things, but they were like so hypercritical and stuff. I'm like, eh, is that really interesting? So I'll, I'll just stick to favorite episodes and favorite villains for now. But something else I thought we could talk about real quick. I kind of hinted at it and touched on it in the proper podcast episodes. But this will be the air order versus the production order of the show. So the first 10 episodes of the show were aired in order that they were made, which makes sense because the release schedule was so sporadic for the early part of the season that they were putting them out as they were making them, it seemed, and they couldn't make them fast enough. They didn't expect the show to be a hit and for Cartoon Network to want more orders of the show because, you know, they only were allowed to make Rabot at first. And then Dave Willis says how they went ahead and started making Escape from Leprechopolis without the okay of Cartoon Network. And they got in a lot of trouble for that. But, you know, eventually it's like, all right, you guys can start making more episodes and more and more and more. So they were putting them out as they were making them, it seems, based on the release schedule. But then once they hit the second half of the season, they started putting them out every single week, new episodes, which was unlike 2001 had seen at all or, or earlier in 2002. So anyways, yeah, they seem to actually make a bunch in advance for the back half of the season. And that's when things got swapped around. Now, I have no idea why... Certain episodes aired out of production order and some didn't. Uh, I guess, you know, you can speculate why, but for all I know, there's no specific reason. But where things change up, and I'm going to try and do this in an audio-friendly way because this is going to be kind of listing some things, but things change up at the 10th episode. So the 10th episode in the production order, now this is according to Wikipedia, but I have to believe that they got these numbers from somewhere, right, uh, is, is Circus. And as we know, Circus ended up being the 12th episode aired on November 17th. So replaced with Circus, they they front-ended, they moved up Dumber Dolls, which was the 13th episode produced. So they moved the 13th episode produced to the 10th slot. And I have to assume that is because David Cross was, you know, a big star at the time, or he was becoming bigger. So they wanted to get that out, you know, for the publicity of it, because that was the big comeback of Aquatine in November of 2002 when the show started airing regularly. So it made sense to lead with this, what they thought would be a very strong episode, which it was. It's a very popular episode, Dumber Dolls. But yeah, we had Dumber Dolls coming in the 10th slot and then just a lot of things moved around. I'm noticing that Bad Replicant was the 15th episode produced 
However, it was the 11th to air. You know, I, I have to wonder if that's because of Matt Harrigan playing a role and they wanted him up front more. I don't know. But uh, the last three episodes of the season are the last three produced. So it's between episodes 10 and 16 that they just kind of move a bunch of things around to get certain things airing sooner than others. For example, I'm seeing Interfection got pushed back because it was the 14th episode produced, but 15th to air. Just, you know, little things like that. Uh, I'm not going to go on about it because I, you know, this doesn't really translate to audio super well without having the lists in front of you. But just interesting how out of 18 episodes, about five or six of them were, were moved around a little bit. But like I said, I, it, it's really once the show came back in November of 2002 that it started airing regularly that they had the even ability and, and flexibility to do this because they had all these episodes done at once, which seemed to be a first because the new episodes were airing so sporadically for about a year before that. And I know looking ahead that season two has some similar things and I got to assume going forward other seasons do this as well. So, so we'll talk about those in further season recaps. But all right, before we wrap up here, I just kind of want to give my thoughts on season one as a whole. As I said in the intro, I ended up liking this season a lot more than I anticipated that I would. And it's really hard to gauge in the entire scheme of Aqua Teen because I haven't seen every episode as in-depth as season one. But I know for a fact that besides the main characters spawning here, of course, this season had some of the most popular side characters to exist in the series. You know, the, the, the show ran for 11 seasons, and most of the most popular villains are from this one. You know, we got the Moon Knights, the Plutonians, MCP Pants, Cybernetic Ghost of Christmas Past from the Future, the Brownie Monsters, Rabot, just, just a ton of very memorable characters. And, you know, I can point to the season two episode, the last one, which is comprised of a ton of the Aqua Teen villains. And a lot of them are from this season, you know, season two, despite being a longer season, didn't really introduce as many memorable villains as season one did. Beyond that, season one has some of the most classic episodes of the show. Ratings wise on IMDb, if that means anything to anyone, it is basically it is the second highest rated behind season two. And I'm saying all this to point out that the entire time we were watching Dave Willis and Matt Malero learn how to make a TV show that wasn't Space Ghost. Of course, those first few episodes are legendary because Aqua Teen is a legendary show, but I mean, we can all see that there are quality differences. The show is not quite what it becomes. And I really loved that and appreciated that about this season, especially coming from the perspective of myself as a podcaster making a podcast about Aqua Teen. It definitely gave me something else to think about while watching the episodes of what tips and tricks were they picking up in terms of making the show, how were they developing as show creators, all that kind of stuff. It was super fun and just charming to see these guys come from this shaky pilot to what became one of the most popular animated shows of all time. And as well, with all of the glitches and graphical errors and stuff that I point out, it's just so humanizing to see that everyone was kind of, you know, working with very little and they were doing the best they could and they made something that we all love. And this is a point I touched on before, but I think that's something to really keep in mind because especially today we're surrounded by so many perfect things or at least, you know, perfectly made things that it's easy to feel disheartened when trying to get into something. But with a show like Aqua Teen, you can see the evolution. Just like when I was talking about my music picks from this year, 2002, I picked two bands that became very big. I picked their first albums that are not popular. 
and are not that big and are very rough and a little sloppy at parts. But that's what I love about them is, you know, you can check out that first My Chemical Romance album when they were just a small band and then, you know, look a couple albums ahead when they were filling stadiums and stuff. And it's just so fun to see that evolution because some things come out the gate just super polished, super corporate, and it's just not very humanizing. Of course, those things can be enjoyable. I'm not, I'm not you know, making a comment about that. But in terms of somebody being a creative, it's really fun to just look and, and watch other creatives who you admire develop and see how they did so. And you can, with Aqua Teen, you know, track the journey of how Shake kind of became Shake that we know, how Meatwad became the Meatwad that we know. And all that stuff. So we really saw that all throughout season one. And I know season two settles into more of what the show is, but we see it throughout season two a little bit more as well. Moving on to how season one influences the rest of the show. A big pivotal episode here, I think, is Dumber Dolls and to a lesser extent Circus and maybe a couple other things. But Dumber Dolls was the first foray into darker kind of episodes. And season two runs with that a lot more. And in further seasons, we get some really dark moments that are played as like, you know, kind of black comedy, dark comedy kind of thing. And this was the first season to start that. And they only did it once. And while I like that humor and I like Dumber Dolls, for example, the episode that really did that. And there's a lot of good season two episodes that do that, too. I feel like they ran a little too far with it in later seasons sometimes. And that's just not what I wanted from the show. Now, we'll get to that when we get to it. In those episodes specifically, but I like here that, you know, there's the loose detective aspect, but I, as I've always said, I like when they're just hanging out and just doing silly things and kind of ragging on each other and stuff, and eventually the show will stray away from that, but here in season one, it really is a golden era, seasons one and two, where they're just kind of doing that, and, and later seasons two to an extent, but yeah, I mean, this is just, it, it goes back to how I was speaking before, I can't remember if it was on the main feed or if it was on a Patreon episode, but how these early Adult Swim shows were forced to just be strange and weird, uh, starting with Space Ghost, really, because they were on Cartoon Network. They couldn't show, you know, really bad things. It was a kid's channel, after all. They really had to work within these limitations, which bred really interesting material, not just in Aqua Team, but in other Adult Swim shows, too. And then as censorship and stuff laxed on them, then things, I feel like, became a bit more homogenized because people went for a lot of similar jokes. They, they didn't have to be as weird as they, as they did before. They, they could maybe throw in sh some shock value and stuff. And that just became less interesting to me. So in this first season, for sure, you're not really running into the shock value stuff as much. There's a couple things that do shock you. Like, for example, when, when Steve gets his, his brain taken out and you see the back of his head cut open, that shocked me because I wasn't used to seeing stuff like that on Aqua Teen, you know, I've been watching season one so intently. Now I go and watch South Park and there's stuff like that all the time. And of course it's funny, but but even something as lax as that in Aqua Teen, just Steve's brain missing was like, holy shit, when, when they showed it. So I definitely appreciate that about season one and the early seasons as a whole. But all right, I think that's a good place to leave my thoughts on season one. Again, if you want more context, there's 18 other episodes where I'm deep diving into every individual Aqua Teen episode. So start there if you want more. Otherwise, my perception of this season will definitely be changing as I continue to deep dive through the rest of the seasons. So, you know, at some point, I'm sure I'll come back and talk about season one again in retrospect of seeing the entire show. And, you know, once I'm done with all, all the episodes, I'll, I'll rank the episodes and all that stuff. So... Yeah, that's really it for the season one talk. Just real quick before I sign off here, I just want to thank you guys for sticking with me and following me through the journey of, you know, tackling all these Aqua Teen episodes in depth. Kind of silly, 
that we're talking so seriously about such a funny, crazy show. But as I've said before, the show is super important to me and I have to assume for you as well. So it's just really been a blast getting to know a lot of you guys. And like I said, I appreciate you sticking with me. I know these last month has been kind of rocky just with the holidays and stuff. It's been very difficult for me to keep on top of things and keep episodes coming out to you guys. But 2022 should be a lot better. Like I said, I've got some time off work coming up that I can use to get ahead with the podcast. And with our schedule change coming up, that will allow me to amass a bunch of finished but unreleased episodes so that if I am sick one week or whatever, we'll still be able to put episodes out and we'll just keep going from there. So yeah, again, just just thanks for sticking with me. Obviously, it's my first podcast. So just always trying to find ways to improve the show, make it better, more interesting for you guys. Thank you to everybody that has shared the show or tried to get others involved with it. Really appreciate that. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all the patrons who sign up for the extra content that I put out. It really helps me. I, I've spent quite a bit of uh, money on things for the show. So, you know, you guys signing up for that really helps me out and, and, and try and make some of my money back. So I appreciate that. And of course, I, I, I can't not shout out our number one in the Hood G $10 tier patrons, Sean, Ian, and Josh. I really appreciate you guys signing up at that super high $10 a month level for really nothing in, re- in rewards. So really, really, really helped me out. So thank you, everybody. Uh, for listening and next week the 10th we're jumping right into season two of aqua teen super birthday snake so stay safe everybody stay warm we'll talk then bye bye